This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Most Americans are in the 1%, planet-wide anyway, but income and wealth inequality within the United States is still a topic of debate. Angus Deaton engages this debate in his new book, The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. We talked about inequality within the United States earlier today. At first blush, it seems fairly compelling that there is this really substantial problem that needs to be dealt with. What do people uh, get right and wrong when uh, we are asked to think about inequality? I think that um, like a lot of these things, the the problem is that you can't deal with it in in sound bites, in short sound bites like that. It's much more complicated. Um, and I know academics always say it's much more complicated. Um, but in this case, I think looking at a single inequality index or trying to argue that inequality is either good or either bad, which seems to have divided the world. I mean, half the economists are saying, it's the market, stupid. This is the way it's supposed to work. And the other half are saying, inequality is a disaster and we have to do something about it. And I think both of those are true. Um, And there are aspects of this that are a real problem and aspects of this that are not a real problem. So, you know, you have to recognize the importance of the market and that inequality is another way of looking at incentives a lot of the time. And we need incentives to make things work. So some of the inequality that comes from returns to education, for instance, is part of the incentives for people to go to school. And by and large, that's a good thing. Um, Of course, some people get left behind, you know, who are not capable of benefiting from the education or whatever. But we'd probably live with that you know, that seems like the market working the way the market's supposed to work. Um, the other side to that, however, is so if you can come to the bit that worries me, and what worries me is the spillover from economic inequality into political inequality and the, the potential undermining of democracy by a few very, very rich people or by rich corporate interests or whatever. And You know, one of the things I say in the book is that when um, Steve Jobs died, there's this mass outpouring of public grief. You know, he gave us all these wonderful things, and he got rich partly in consequence, and that seems like a terrific thing. Um, You really worry whether when Lloyd Blankfein dies, there will be quite the same outpouring of public grief. And I think there's a worry that in the financial sector and in some of the healthcare sector, there's that social and private incentives are not properly aligned and you worry about the political system being undercut by large-scale funding. Do you see part of the problem of if we're to contrast the deaths of Steve Jobs and Lloyd Blankfein, do you think part of the difference of the outpouring is simply uh, familiarity with the products that these people are responsible for? That's possible. And it's certainly true that the products of Lloyd Blankfein are not something that's in our pockets all the time and is giving us day-to-day pleasure. And no doubt you could make an argument which says we ought to, um, you know, that these products are ones that have made our lives better. I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether all the things that have been invented in Wall Street are things that have great social worth. And I don't think the work's really been done on that. And there's a little bit too much of, you know, knee-jerk action on the right who says that everything that financial markets 
do must be fine and knee-jerk reaction on the left, which says, you know, it's all wicked and it's a conspiracy. Um, I'm sure some of that stuff is socially beneficial and some of it is not. And some of that work needs to be done. I mean, another part of this loop that's not, I think, as well studied as it ought to be is the link from money back to politics and exactly how that works and how much of that is good and how much of it is not good. The people who primarily view inequality and however measured, either income inequality or wealth inequality, uh, the people who view that as a huge problem, where are, where do they just get it right in your view? Where, where are they just – they have the same concerns that you have? Um, I, I'm not sure I can speak for those people. Okay. Um, I mean I think – I mean the question is – part of it is this is a philosophical underpinning. I mean are you really bothered about inequality? And some people – probably more on the left, will say we just don't like inequality. We don't want to live in a society in which there are big unequal distribution of wealth or income. That doesn't bother me. Um, I recognize that line of argument. Um, there are people who say that jealousy should count. You know, if you've got a bigger car than I do and that makes me unhappy, if we're adding up total happiness, you know, that should count. And utilitarian philosophers would take that position, I think. Um, I'm not sure I give great weight to jealousy <laughs> um, when I add up those things. I do worry, though, that economists who talk about inequality do it too narrowly. And by that I mean we're very fond of the Pareto criterion, which says, you know, some people are better off and nobody's worse off. Um, the world is a better place. And I agree with that. I think that criterion is right. But you mustn't apply it too narrowly because if you just say that some people got a lot more money – and other people didn't get any money, so the world is a better place. It depends what the people who got the money use it for. And if they use it to corrupt the political system, for example, I think that's a problem. And I think that's where the critics probably have it right. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, the critics tend to ignore the incentive side of this thing, the, the parts that really this is producing things. Um, you know, so it, you have to take a nuanced view of it. The other thing I think that happens is that people, <coughs> excuse me, um, tend to work with single indexes. So we're so used to looking at a Gini coefficient or something like that. And I think that's terribly misleading. And, you know, you have to, there's a lot of, I think, very fruitless debate about saying if you measure it properly, the genie is going this way or it's not going that way or the increase is not so bad. Very different things are happening in different parts of the income distribution. So, for instance, there's a lot of fairly low-income workers, for instance, in the healthcare sector who are doing pretty well because, you know, they're not paid a lot but they're not suffering a lot either, and that's because they're not being threatened by outsourcing. You know, the, the people who work in homes for the elderly are not threatened by their jobs being replaced by people in India, for example. Um, and I think that's different um, from what's happening at the very top and so on. So I, I think one has to take a holistic view. I think of the income distribution as more like a river than like a single number. One of the, thing I, one of the things I hear uh, particularly libertarians argue when it comes to looking at inequality is the difference between uh, income inequality say 50 years ago or 20 years ago and today and presented with two different pictures of inequality at two snapshots in time can give you a, a pretty skewed view of what that 
implies. I think that's certainly right. Um, I think it's useful to go back and look 100 years ago, too. And, you know, what is sometimes called the Gilded Age. Um, But, you know, that was the end of another period of great technical innovation when a lot of people got very, very rich. The Rockefellers, the um, railroad people, and so on. J.P. Morgan, and so on. And, you know, the political reaction to that eventually undid a lot of that through the progressive age that followed. I have no idea whether this is going to happen this time, but I think we could learn quite a lot from looking back in that period. Do you have suspicions about what that might show in terms of what has uh, what occurred in terms of, you know, we have these extremely wealthy industrialists right. who presided in many cases over dramatically falling prices for uh, basic goods, mm-hmm. and yet we had this progressive era that, that – uh, coincided with that. It's a very great puzzle, right? Because during that progressive era, people were doing rather well. So, you know, the middle classes that became the backbone of the progressive movement um, were not doing very badly during that period. So this was not a revolt of disenfranchised people from below. It was just some belief that things weren't right somehow. And the muckrakers played a very important part in that story. I don't know if there's anything like that today. I mean, it's very tempting to draw parallels, but very, very dangerous. And I don't know. I mean, if people ask me, do I think inequality is going to go on increasing or do I think it's going to be pulled back, I give you a 50-50 chance either way. I mean, I think they're pretty strong forces um, pushing in both directions. And it's not a simple right-left thing. I mean, the very, very rich are not you know, at the very high reaches, about as many of them are Democrats as Republicans, you know. So this is not a simple political issue. It's much more an issue of money and politics and what you think that does. Angus Deaton is author of The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. You can watch a forum for the book at our website, cato.org.